Time is short, but the Lord's word is rich. So let's study. Isaiah 17. This is kind of an obscure passage, but it's one of those passages that stands out when you read it. When you go by it, you go, wait a second, that's, that's extra important. The Lord wants to tell me something there. Let me take a little bit of time this morning to lay out the context, because the context is very important. Very soon after Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah hears this word from the Lord and speaks it forth, judgment is going to come on Judah. Now, Judah, you remember, was the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was. And this judgment, this discipline, this captivity that's going to take place is going to be a direct result of their sin and the fact that they're trusting in the word of false prophets who are saying, listen, everything's fine, there's peace, God's not upset, it's all going to be okay, you have nothing to worry about. No matter what you do, everything's fine. And these guys were so convincing, apparently, that even Jeremiah at one point asked the Lord, hey, what about what they're saying? And God says, no, they're not from me. I didn't send those prophets. They're speaking uh, lies in my name. They're telling you something that you want to hear, kind of like 2 Timothy 4, where you're itching ears. It's what you want to hear, but it's not the truth. And he says, the people have fallen under that, and they've been convinced by it. And it says in chapter 14 that the people, God says, love to wander. Now he's holding them accountable. He says, whatever they do at this point, it's too late. If they fast and pray, I'm not going to hear them. I'm not going to accept it. If they offer burnt sacrifices to me, it's, it's too late. I've already determined the discipline. I've already determined the judgment. And besides, they're not sincere when they offer it. They, their hearts aren't in it. It's ritual, it's routine, it's rote. They have the wrong motives. It's like Cain in Genesis who offers the sacrifice, but it's not the right sacrifice. Now, the Lord is patient and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's rich in love. There is no doubt about that. But we also must balance that with the fact that he will not abide sin. And he will especially not abide sin when it's collective sin, when everybody is in on it where somebody should stand up and say, wait a second, this is wrong, the Lord doesn't want this, and stir the heart of the people to repent. And that's what Jeremiah had done. He had preached, and he had warned, and he had prophesied, and he had said, this is what's going to happen. But the people still rejected him. In fact, most pastors feel great empathy for Jeremiah, because Jeremiah preached, but he didn't have a congregation. He heard from the Lord, he went out, he talked about the Lord, but the room was empty. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody cared. People didn't want to hear warning. They didn't want to hear about discipline. They didn't want to hear about turning back to the Lord. They denied their need for the Lord because their hearts were hardened. Now listen, it always comes back in Scripture to the state of our hearts. And as we're going to see in a couple minutes, our hearts are naturally sinful. There is nothing good about them in their inner core. But once we're saved and once we're redeemed by the Lord, our hearts are completely changed. What was once characterized by sin is not now characterized by holiness. What was once under bondage and held back by sin is now freed to be pure and holy. That's why our actions must necessarily follow the change in our heart. 
because it is an external validation of the change that's happened internally. Any believer, even a new believer, cannot continue to carry around the traits of someone who's not redeemed. Now hear that, that's very important. As believers, as those who have trusted in Christ, as those who have been delivered from sin, as those who have been redeemed and washed by the blood, which we just celebrated, and are declared to be Christ's and are given His Spirit, as those people, we can't continue now to be characterized by someone whose that's not true of. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and He claims ownership of our lives. So we're either yielding to Him, or we're resisting Him. Now, the Israelites are the perfect example in the Old Testament of this principle. Listen to how the Lord describes them later in chapter 29. These people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In other words, they maintain the appearance of people that walk with the Lord, but it was mechanical and lifeless. It was routine. It was going through the motions. It was practicing but not feeling. It was do this, do that, do this, do that, but there was no heart behind it. There was nothing that stirred in them. It didn't draw out of their love for the Lord and out of their desire to be like Him. It drew out of routine and tradition and wrote. And the Lord says, their hearts are far from me. They've removed themselves from my presence and they've shut their ears to my word and they disregarded the promptings of my spirit. And it's all just one big mundane exercise. Now, how many of us know this morning that our life with the Lord should be anything but that? There should never be the feeling of I gotta, and I gotta do this because somebody tells me to study 20 minutes a day, and I gotta pray, and I gotta come to church, and I gotta give. <sighs> Anybody know? Huh? Everybody say, huh? Our faith, our walk is not, huh? joy and passion, raising our hands and praising God and giving the fruit of our lips and reaching in and giving liberally and serving even when we don't want to and bending down to talk to a child and say, how are you and what is the Lord doing in your lives and praying for people. It's the joy of that. There should be such a passion and a zeal and an energy to our faith, a hunger for him, a heart that's seeking him, a heart that's stirred to draw near to him where we really, literally can't get enough of His presence. And we can't have enough of His nature, and we can't sense enough of His sufficiency. This is the great tragedy of the Old Testament, and it's why I think it's so valuable for us to study, because the people who had it all, they had the manifest presence of the Lord with them. You could see the presence of the Lord. They had the faithful promises of God. They had the leading of the Lord. They had the dynamic power and the presence of the Lord. But they not only took it for granted, okay, that's, that's something that happens, and they not only squandered the blessings, all right, we're getting a little deeper now, but they intentionally ignored Him. 
And they intentionally rebelled against him. And the Lord just continues to show love and mercy. And he disciplines them just to get their hearts right back to him. And for a moment they do. And then very quickly they stray and wander away. And they're in a mess again. And they're so spiritually delusional that in chapter 16, verse 10, they say, what have we done wrong? What did we do? We didn't commit any sin. That's a problem, God. Why are you picking on us? I mean, that's really the, the vernacular. Why are you picking on us? Why are you disciplining us? What's going on? We haven't done anything to you. Now remember, these are God's people. These are the ones that he chose and put his hand on. These are the ones who had the promises of God that are eternal, that are being fulfilled today. Listen, the reason Israel hasn't been wiped off the mat by dozens of Arab nations that absolutely hate them, and the reason it will never happen to the extent that those nations wanted to is because the Lord is restraining their hands. But that doesn't mean he won't discipline them. For 50 years, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah warned the people, judgment's coming unless you turn your hearts. Captivity's coming unless you change. Remember, the, the Old Testament's not laid out chronologically. Isaiah and Jeremiah ministered during the time of the kings. So they're warning the people. They're warning Judah. And now the captivity is imminent. Chapter 3, verse 20. God says, Judah's been like a faithless wife to me who breaks her marriage vows. And they've forsaken me and they're going to reap the results of that. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to devastate the nation. And they're going to initially take away 10,000 of the strongest men. And then they're going to take the treasures from Solomon's temple. Now you would think that, that a result that drastic w would maybe turn the people back to the Lord. But, but what happens is, Judah continues to resist God. So God allows a second wave, and Nebuchadnezzar now brings in his troops. Because 2 Chronicles 36 says that they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people until there was no remedy. That happened in 586. 586, Nebuchadnezzar launches a second assault, and he goes up against Jerusalem and he lays siege to it and this time the destruction is complete and the victory is resounding and the walls of Jerusalem are knocked down and the temple is burned to the ground and the leaders are killed and now as many as 50,000 people are taken into captivity and for the next 70 years the city of Jerusalem and the land lays vacant what a powerful statement about the cost of a heart that is not living for the Lord. Sin always brings separation. And sin, sin always brings desolation. And we're going to see that in just a minute. And I know this has been a long introduction, but we've got to get to where we need to be. Look back at chapter 16, verse 14 for a minute. And then we're going to read our passage. Again, the Lord says, I'll be gracious. I'll restore you. And it'll be such that people won't talk about my deliverance from Egypt anymore. In the future, they're going to talk about what I'm going to do in bringing you back 
from Babylon. That happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah who's broken about the state of the nation. And he starts to call out to the Lord and ask for some way to, re to help restore the nation. And he goes to Artaxerxes. We know the story. I won't go into it. And Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah's pain. And he shows favor to him. And he gives him resources. And they go back and they rebuild the wall in 52 days. The Lord kept his word. He had not lost sight of them, even though they weren't seeking him. Because as he says in chapter 16, verse 17, my eyes are on all their ways. What a powerful truth that is. The Lord never once this week has taken his eyes off of you and me. This coming week, when you leave church this morning, you go get lunch, you hang out at your house, you certainly can't mow your lawn. And you're spending the day of rest, and you may be spending some time with your children or family or whatever. The, the Lord has, is not taking his eyes off you. When you go to bed tonight, the Lord doesn't take his eyes off of you. In the middle of the night when you're in REM sleep and your leg is twitching and, and you want some candy because you woke up, and, and the, Lord, the Lord's watching. Not once has he taken his eyes off of you and me. In rebellion, he's watching. When we're faithful, he's watching. When we're in secret sin, he's watching. When we're praising him, he's watching. Nothing is hidden from his face. Now that either fills you with joy and you say, praise the Lord that God watches me and is faithful to me. Or it causes you to kind of get nervous. And shy away. Oh, you mean to tell me the Lord saw that? Yikes. Nothing's hidden. The Bible says everything's laid bare. But, but that's not because he's nosy and because he's big brother. It's because he has a deep, unending interest in your life. And he desires that your heart would be inclined to him and trust him and live in his holiness and seek him and talk about him and tell others about the change that has happened in your life because of Jesus Christ. He, he wants you to know that he loves you. Now, the text, Isaiah 17, 1 to 10, details the distinct difference between the existence and the experience of the person who lives for himself in contrast to the person who trusts in the Lord. Every single one of us can relate to the first because we've all been there in our lives. And some of you, even this morning, may be there. Maybe this morning you are living for yourself and God feels distant. The reason that result may be happening is that your heart is in resistant rebellion to how the Lord wants you to live and how he has provided for you to live. And you may even be somebody that at one point has trusted in the Lord, but like Judah, you've strayed. But even in their captivity, there was a purpose. Even in what you're in right now, God is using that. He's turning that. He's creating that purpose that he has for you to call you to be free from that captivity. You don't have to be stuck where you are this morning. If I'm speaking to you and you know it, and you're feeling like I'm isolating you, I promise I'm not. I don't know who you are. I don't know what's in your heart. But if that's you this morning, I'm telling you right now, you can be free from it. You don't have to stay there. And I pray your heart will be open this morning. I pray you'll listen to the Spirit's challenge and that this will be the day where your heart finally draws close to the Lord for good. 
Or there may be a second reason. The second reason would be that you're in a time of testing and trial and the Lord's refining you and examining the sincerity and depth of your faith and your conviction. My encouragement to you this morning is to not be discouraged. You say, well, Rhodes, that's easy. Don't be discouraged. That's good advice. Now, hear what I'm saying. The Lord is faithful and he is sufficient and he will encourage you and stand by you and support you and nurture you. He will never take his eyes off of you. So I'm telling you this morning, if you're discouraged in your struggle and your opposition, don't waver in your love and faith in the Lord because this too is designed to make you more like him. Right now, your life may feel parched and his presence may feel distant, but he is faithful and he is watching you and he is shaping you. Don't lose heart. As anybody who has ever trusted in the Lord consistently, whoever has walked with him knows he can fill you and refresh you spiritually and personally on a daily basis and he can keep you in abundance. That's the message of these verses that we're going to read. This is showing the contrast between a heart that trusts in itself and a heart that trusts in others versus a heart that trusts in the Lord alone. And in this text, he gives us the sensation of what that feels like. Look at it. I know I've talked a long time. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it's engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their ashram by green trees on the high hills. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin throughout your borders, and you will even of yourself let go of your inheritance that I gave you. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. That's the first statement. That's the first picture. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than any else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now, the overarching spiritual principle from this text is very, very simple. And the thought is that who and what we trust in determines where we live spiritually. Who and what we trust in determines where we live spiritually. Not just eternally, but in this life. The Lord is telling us that there is a place of spiritual and personal desolation and drought. And there's also a place of blessing and abundance. So which describes you this morning? Where do you live? Do you live in the dry desert or do you live by the refreshing water? Now the Jewish people were constantly in the wilderness, literally and figuratively, and it was because of their rebellion. 
Now, verse 1, the Lord describes their spiritual condition very strongly. He says, your sin is written with an iron stylus, not like a quill that they used on parchment. He says it's written with an iron stylus and it's engraved with a diamond point. The thought there is that their rejection of the Lord and their trust in themselves and their worship of false idols was indelibly inscribed on their hearts. This was not just a phase. This was not just a temporary thing where they're kind of be a teenager spiritually, rebel against the Lord. You know, we follow the Lord for a long time. We need to sow our oats. That was not this. This is a permanent condition that was written with a diamond point that was etched into their character because their desire of their hearts didn't fade. They wanted to serve themselves. And they had even inscribed it on their altars to false gods. Now, the Lord had told them through Solomon in Proverbs 3, 3, don't let the truth leave you. Bind it around your neck. Wear it on your body. Write it on the tablet of your heart. But they didn't do that. They engraved something else in their hearts. There's a very important thought here that we should not miss. Never substitute something inferior for what the Lord is willing to do for you and give you. Never settle for something that is far less, that is far more inferior because it's based on us when the Lord wants to give you his abundance. How many times do we do that where we reason that what the world offers will be more wonderful and more pleasing and more beneficial than what the Lord wants to provide? Where we think that, that the world, which is run by the enemy, who is a known liar, that the world will, will somehow promise us and give us something that would even start to compare to God's sufficiency and God's blessing, let alone be greater. Listen, that is a bluff. That's a fraud. That's a lie. It will never deliver what it promises. And yet the people of Judah, oh, they knew best. So they went out and they worshipped false gods. In this case, it was the Asherah. We have some pictures this morning just to help with our visual. If you'd put up the picture of the Asherah. This was a, a pole that they made and they worshipped out in the wilderness. This was the Assyrian goddess of fertility. And usually this was made either out of a tree trunk or out of stone. And it was placed under a live green tree. Now whatever that was made of really didn't matter because it was designed to represent a tree. I want you to remember that. Put that in the back of your mind for a minute. So in the middle of all these living green trees, they would bring this fake tree. And, and they would worship it like it was live. But the first indication that it was a worthless counterfeit was the fact that it was a fake tree in the middle of real trees thinking about this this week and it reminded me of this telephone pole it's a cell tower uh, near my brother's house on route 208 in northern new jersey and as you're driving along route 208 which is a very busy road you, you see this pole and it's got branches and something about it if you really look closely doesn't look right it doesn't look natural what they've done is they've taken a pole and they've created it to look like a tree with fake branches and everything. And if you just glance at it, you think, oh, there's another tree. But when you look closely, 
you realize that it's acting like something it's not. Now that's what the Asherah was. It was an inadequate substitute for a real God. But the people came and they worshipped it like it was real. And they ignored the one true God like their forefathers had at Sinai when they took off the rings and they threw them in the fire and they shaped a golden calf that they just watched come out of the fire and they said, that's who led us out of Egypt. The lack of logic was astounding. And then they trusted not only in the Asherah, but, next slide please, they trusted in the high places. These were uh, altars of idol worship, and you see that they were kind of up high where they look over everything. They would come to these places and they would worship idols. And then you see kind of those mountains off in the distance. That's the kind of mountains that are around Jerusalem. They trusted in the security of those mountains. They thought, well, we're kind of protected and Jerusalem has little hills around it and we can use those as an offensive and defensive advantage against any attack. But they quickly discovered that the mountains were no match for the Babylonians. Because the Babylonians just marched right over the mountains and then they laid the walls in the city flat. But they continued to trust, not the Lord. Then they went and trusted other nations. They had developed a cozy little relationship with Egypt. How ironic was that? And, and it was kind of reciprocal where they helped each other and called on each other. And when, when Judah was in trouble, they would go to Egypt and they'd say, can you help us? But even Egypt at this point can't help against the planned discipline of the Lord. So spiritually and practically, Judah is alone and defensively naked. They're out in the open. Now, if you look at verse 6, the Lord compares them to a bush in the desert. The text here suggests that this was a heath bush. A heath bush was known as the naked tree. It was a bush that wasn't sown or planted. It had no seed or no fruit. It provided no shade and no relief. One person referred to it as the sorry shrub. It was worthless. It had no purpose other than to be a spot of green in the middle of the desert. Could you go to the next slide for a minute? Sorry, I don't have my point this morning. Anybody see the heath bush? Right over on the left side of the screen, about halfway up, that's a heath bush. You see how much protection that's providing in the desert, right? Boy, you just want to go sit under that and get that shade. Maybe have a nice iced tea or something from Chick-fil-A. That's not going to do anything for you, correct? That's not going to be any sufficiency. And yet, God says, Judah, you're like that bush. You're out in the middle of the desert. You have no real purpose. You have no strength in yourselves. You're not bearing any fruit. You've turned away from the Lord, and you've trusted in yourself. And now, like that bush, you're in the middle of a wasteland. You wouldn't want to walk through that this afternoon any more than you'd want to walk out in the 40 degrees of rain. In fact, you'd much rather walk in the 40 degrees of rain because there's no relief in sight. He's describing what happens when our hearts follow ourselves. And you see back in verse 9, he says, let me tell you what the heart's like. The heart is deceitful. The word means that it trips us up. It grabs us by the ankle. And it makes us fall. And it's desperately sick. The word is incurable. So trusting in it only makes us confused. 
and helpless. Now, even though that's the default position of every person, it is not where we have to stay. Even though we are born with a sin nature and we are born with that dry heart, it is not where we have to stay because even in the middle of the desert, in the place of spiritual dryness and desolation, whether that's a result of never trusting in the Lord or wandering away from the Lord, there is a place of refreshing that the Lord wants to bring us to. If you go to the next slide, I want to show you something. This is the wilderness of Israel. Pretty inhospitable, isn't it? You see that little dark strip? Go to the next slide. Let's zoom in on it. See the green around it in the middle of all the dryness and the harshness and the desolation? There's green there. Now zoom into the next slide. That's refreshing. That's the place of God's sufficiency. Because you can stand up on the hills of Israel and you look down and as far as you can see, like the slide two slides ago, there's nothing but brown. There's no relief. There's no trees. There's nothing. And then you look down and you see this little strip and all around the little strip, it's green. And as you get closer and closer, you realize that it's this fertile ribbon of fresh water that stands in stark contrast to the lifelessness around it. And where there is water, there is life. And where there is life, there is fruit. Now this is what the Lord is referring to in making this contrast in verses 1 to 8. And look at the condition for it in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Just keep that slide up. And whose trust is in the Lord. Then when we trust him, look at where he puts us. Look at how he provides. The person who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It won't be anxious in the drought and it won't stop bearing fruit. In other words, God is saying, when you trust me, there's that. Even in the middle of the desert, even in the middle of the confusion, even in the middle of nothing, I will provide. Now, it seems in verse 7 like the Lord's repeating himself, but the word trust, very interestingly, is two different words in the Hebrew. When he says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, the word there is batok. It means to be confident, to feel secure, to trust. In other words, it's the faith that's born out of conviction. It is knowing that you can trust in him. Blessed is the man that knows he can trust in the Lord. And then he has a second phrase, and whose trust is in the Lord. The word there is just a little bit different. It's mibtah. It means confidence and hope and refuge. This is more of the everyday action of trusting and finding security. In other words, as James says, faith must have action, and the action proves our faith. Blessed is the man who is convicted that God is worthy of trust and has put his confidence in the Lord. And blessed is the man who lives that every day. It's not enough to just say, oh, I believe in the Lord. 
Oh, yeah, God, Jesus, I've got all that. that yeah, I, I, I made a decision once. I prayed that prayer. But, but there's not a living out of it independence every day. It's not enough to say, oh, yes, Jesus died for my sins. It's wonderful. And I pray a prayer in 1979 and, and, and my life is, is different. But, but you're not walking faithfully with him. And you're not living by his standards. And you're not unwavering in his faithfulness. And when difficulty comes and our faith is tested and tried like the heat of the wilderness, two things are going to happen. Either you're going to cozy up to that little bush and hope that it'll be enough, or you're going to say, I'm going to be right there. I'm going to live in the sufficiency of God. Look at verse 9. We're almost done. He says, when the heat comes, you won't fear. The word there literally means you won't even feel the heat because the Lord will give a secret strength that is not visible to anyone. Go to the next slide. One more, please. Thank you. He says you'll be like a tree planted by the river. Does that look like something you want to sit under right now? Hot day with the bugs making noise. Kind of no wind. I know that's hard to imagine. I pray it's coming. I pray it's coming. But, but just picture it in your mind, even though it's been four years since we felt that. On a hot day, you don't want to sit out in the desert by that little heath bush. On a hot day, you want to be right there. And notice the strength of that tree. Notice how it's leaning toward the water Notice the greenness of it. Notice that its roots, which are hard to see, are, are bending down toward the water. He says, the person that trusts in me is like that. They're like a tree that's planted with roots that are digging into the riverbank to draw refreshment from the water, and the water helps it grow and withstand drought and bear fruit. And the more the roots spread out and go deeper, symbolizing faith and maturity, the fruit becomes more abundant because that hidden support is providing strength. Now that's a stark contrast visually, isn't it? And yet some of us are still kind of sticking back in the desert and hoping it's going to get better. Psalm 1 says that the characteristics of a person who loves the Lord are that they refuse to walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the path of sinners. Instead, they delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it on it day and night. The more you wander, the more I wander, the more we try to find fake alternatives that keep us from trusting in the Lord. But the more we trust, the more we want to trust. Hear that now. I'm done. The more you trust the Lord, the more you want to trust, the more you know that that is the place to be. We quickly realize that we need to live in a place of refreshing. God warned Judah. He said, guys, you are doing your own thing. You are out in the desert. And you wonder why everything is so dry and lifeless. I have more for you. Listen, you've listened so well this morning. Let me say to you, God has more for you. He has more refreshing for your life. 
but your heart has got to be inclined to him. Let's pray. I don't know where you are this morning, but the place where you are living should be pretty obvious. It's either dry and lifeless and bringing false temporary satisfaction or it is fresh and full of life and you have eternal confidence. There is really no middle ground. The Lord does not give us the option of just being satisfied with a nice view of the water. It's either wilderness or riverbank. So don't just fall back into the I'm a Christian. You may be. You may have committed your life to Christ. But are you walking with him? Are you living for him? Are you trusting in him? Maybe life feels dry this morning. You need to get back to that place of refreshing. I pray right now that your heart would turn to him. You'd say, Lord, enough of following myself. Maybe what I'm saying is foreign to you. Maybe you've never turned your life to Christ. This morning it's starting to click and you're starting to understand that living for ourselves and trusting in others and trusting in things is never going to be sufficient. It brings separation and desolation and dryness. And you look at that tree and you say, I want to be there. I want to know that spiritually. I'm going to tell you right now, you can turn your life over to Christ. You can say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have wandered from you all my life, but right now, this morning, I'm turning my heart to you. I trust in what Christ did. I trust that he took my sins upon himself. I trust that he died for me. I trust that he rose again. And Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know that I want you as my Savior. We're not going to have people come forward this morning. I'm not asking you to raise hands. This is between you and the Lord. This is a decision of your heart. And yet I would say, if you turn your life over to Christ this morning, please come talk to me or please come talk to Randy. We want to pray with you and encourage you and get you started. Don't leave this place without living in the right place. Father, your grace is sufficient. Your mercy is everlasting. Your love covers all of our failures. And Lord, every single one of us knows what it's like to live for ourselves. Every single one of us knows what it's like to be out in that desert spiritually with no hope and no refuge. But Lord, you say that you'll be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And Lord, this morning, for every single one of us, I pray that our hearts would be inclined in a new way to you and that we would realize the greatness of your presence and the refreshing 
of being that tree planted by the water because we trust in you. Lord, continue to work in hearts throughout this morning, throughout this day. If someone's hesitant right now, Lord, don't give up on them. Keep drawing them toward yourself. We thank you and praise you this morning for how good you are. Lord, we love you. We don't understand how you would ever possibly love us, but we love you because you first loved us. May our hearts be full of joy, contentment, because we know you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Stand and close with the sun.